Heavenly Father, uh, what a blessing it is to see you at work in the body of Christ. To see you take men and women, uh, those around us, those like Leslie and Randy as they visit with us today. Men and women who, apart from you, are just like us. And yet, Father, with you, they can do remarkable things. And we're, we're the same, Father. It's an encouragement to remember that, that none of us have anything to offer you except our availability. And, Father, you take our time and you take our, our willingness to sacrifice ourselves for your sake and you put it to great work. And you take weak things, you say, and you take foolish things and you make marvelous things out of us. All of it to your glory, not to our own, but... What a blessing it is, Father, to be useful to you in that way. So whether we play a musical instrument or whether we work with children, whether we move furniture and clean kitchens and mow lawns or teach the Bible, whatever it is you call us to do, Father, it's a beautiful uh, orchestra of music at work in service to you and to your body. And I thank you, Father, that you have equipped this body in the way that you have, with the gifts that we have, the diversity of gifts we have, even though we aren't a particularly large church, Father. Nevertheless, you've not left us without what we need, and you've gifted us beyond all measure, Father. Thank you for that. And thank you for your word, most of all, the light to our feet, Father, that voice in our hearts that explains who you are and who we are, so that we would want to be less like we are and more like you. And gives us the opportunity, Father, to know eternal truths. One day, Father, we will see them face to face, but even now we understand them from afar as you teach us in your word. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, this morning it's time to start our third division in this book. We've now gone through two parts of the book of Ezekiel, and we start a third one today. The third part runs from chapter 12, where we are this morning, all the way to chapter 19. And I don't know how much this matters to you guys. I'm the kind of student who loves these divisions. This is how I keep it straight in my mind. And this section we're about to go into now is actually very interesting. Very interesting. It'll be the very first time that you and I get a chance to hear from the exiles themselves. Remember, up to now we've been watching and listening as Ezekiel's prophecies have been given over the past year or so in the course of this book, over about a 14-month period. He's been given these prophecies to the exiles of Israel who are now in Babylon. And as he's been giving them these words from the Lord, they have not been receiving them. They've not been believing them. How do I know that? Well, because in these eight chapters, you get to hear from the exiles themselves as they offer excuses back to Ezekiel for why they think Ezekiel's prophecies are not going to come true. Even though the Lord is speaking through Ezekiel in all these dramatic ways, they're telling Ezekiel, you don't know what you're talking about. So what we find in these chapters are those excuses and then God's refutation of those excuses. God speaking again through Ezekiel to explain to them why their excuses are nonsense. And I just love this kind of stuff. I don't know about you, but I love to see people try to go toe-to-toe with God. Because you know how it's going to end, but it's always fun to see how it ends, how it gets there, how people learn. I mean, stories like Job telling God what God doesn't already know. That whole nature of humanity to try to stand toe-to-toe to God is just evidence of what we all know started in the garden. This idea that we can be like God. And here you see God dealing with His people. 
So in chapter 12, we find the first of these excuses. And almost exactly, not quite, but almost exactly, there's one excuse for each of these eight chapters. They overlap a little, but that's basically how they line up. So the first of the excuses comes today in chapter 12. But we aren't going to get to the excuse itself until next week, because it's in the later part of this chapter that the excuse is actually given. Before we get to that first excuse, there are some preliminaries here. The Lord has Ezekiel prepare another of his street performances to tell another story to Israel because the Lord knows this excuse is coming and he is setting up a set of circumstances so he can deal with it when it comes. So we're going to deal with the setup today. Next week we'll get to the first excuse. So Ezekiel 12, chapter 12, verse 1, where we start this morning. I'll read verses 1 through 7 to open up. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you live in the midst of the rebellious house, who have eyes to see, but do not see, ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Therefore, son of man, prepare for yourself baggage for exile, and go into exile by day in their sight. Even go into exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. Bring your baggage out by day in their sight as baggage for exile. Then you will go out at evening in their sight as those going into exile. Dig a hole through the wall in their sight and go out through it. Load the baggage on your shoulder in their sight and carry it out in the dark. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the land, for I have set you as a sign to the house of Israel. I did so as I had been commanded. By day I brought out my baggage like the baggage of an exile. Then in the evening I dug through the wall with my hands. I went out in the dark and carried the baggage on my shoulder in their sight. So this is another fascinating moment, isn't it? So poor Ezekiel. I'm saying poor because, boy, he, he gets taken through some pretty unique circumstances, pretty unique things he has to go do. In this case, he has a new message now that he has to act out. And I want you to notice, just as a point of administration, I guess, notice this message is not dated. I told you at the outset of this study that these prophecies, as they come in the book of Ezekiel, each is dated. That's how we separate them. That dating is our way of understanding the precision in which God is speaking, and Ezekiel is recording what he hears. It also gives us a better sense of the context. But in this case, you don't see any dates as he begins this new section. That would tell you that this is a continuation of the previous moment that we started all the way back in chapter 8. So chapter 8 began the second section. It ran until chapter 11. Now we're in a new section because of content, because of what's in it. We call it a new section. But in terms of timing, it's just a continuation of what we've already studied. So we have to assume that Ezekiel has already told the captives what he saw in that second vision from chapter 8 to 11. Remember what was in there? That was where you have the Apache cherubim landing, escorting the glory of the God out of the tabernacle, and all of the destruction of the city and the people, all of that is a way of depicting or explaining that the city is going to be plundered, captured, and so on. He's told them all that, and the people have had a chance to think about it and respond. And from what you're going to learn in this chapter, they don't respond well to what they've been told. In fact, they deny that Ezekiel is telling them the truth. They rebel against the word of the Lord, and that rebellion in their heart began all the way back in Jerusalem. And now that they're in exile, they're still carrying that same rebellious heart into their exile. In verse 2, the Lord tells Ezekiel the very same thing. He says, you're dealing with a rebellious house. That's the reality of who we have here. He says, they have eyes to see, and they have ears to hear, but they're not seeing, and they're not hearing. The Lord is speaking in spiritual terms here, obviously. He's not saying they're literally blind or deaf. But in spiritual ways, he's saying that 
Though the prophet is coming to them with information from God, the people are being given sight in that sense. They're being given sight by God through the prophet's words and through his visions. And they're being given ears by what he is able to tell them from the word of the Lord himself. Nevertheless, he says, though they've seen what will happen, they are denying the prophecies. Which is a way of saying, they're not seeing. They're not hearing. Even though God has given them the ability. I like that description a lot. I like that description of how men and women respond to the word of the Lord. All believers have been given the spiritual truth of the word of the Lord. We've all been given the spirit of God to teach us, to talk to us about what's in God's word. You've got all you need. And sometimes we use those things properly. Sometimes we see, so to speak, spiritually we see things. We understand what God is doing. He speaks to us through the word of God and we hear that truth and then we respond to it. Sometimes we see him, sometimes we hear. And then there are times when we close our eyes and we close our ears. Ignoring the Word of God is like that. You should think of it that way. It's like closing your eyes and closing your ears. We tend to think of it the other way around. We tend to tell ourselves, why can't I hear from God? Why won't He show me what I'm supposed to do? The reality is, He has given you sight and He has given you the ability to hear spiritually through the mechanisms of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. The issue is you're not listening. We typically shut Him off or we're too busy listening to other things. And the Bible has a way of describing that pattern of shutting off our eyes and ears to the Lord. It's called the grieving of the Spirit. It manifests in sin, but people tend to think of the sin itself as grieving the Spirit. You don't get there in one step. You sin because you're not listening and following and hearing and obeying, and all of that preparatory work has been shut off. And when you shut off the Spirit of the Lord, what do you have left? The flesh. You live in the flesh instead of living in the Spirit. It's often been described to two dogs that fight in a dog fight. And when you ask which dog is going to win in the dog fight, what is the old saying? Whichever one you do what? Feed, right? Whichever dog you feed is the stronger, that's the one that's going to win. Well, you've got two dogs fighting inside you. You've got the Spirit of God and you've got the flesh. One's going in the grave, one is eternal. One knows the truth, one hates the truth. Which one are you feeding? That's the one that's going to have control. Grieving the Spirit is about feeding the wrong thing. Shutting off your ears, shutting off your eyes, listening to your body, your flesh, and to your own desires over what God has for you. And it never goes well. And it never ceases to amaze me how many Christians treat the study of God's Word as an optional pursuit. This is a tendency for people to treat the Word of God as a kind of activity on a calendar that we do when we feel like it. As opposed to the very way we live spiritually. And how many more will knowingly adopt views of life and ministry that are directly contradicted by the Word of God? How many Christians live in ways that are patently false given what Scripture asks of them? My finding and my experience has been that those two things are related. You shut off your eyes and your ears, you live in a way that's displeasing because that's who you are naturally. Those are called moments of rebellion. And we all have moments like that in our life. No one's exempt from this, and it's never a good thing. But the real problem is when you begin to make that a pattern. When it becomes your lifestyle to be closed off to what God says in His Word, and then to suffer as a result in the sins that come from it, that lifestyle is called rebellion. A rebellious house. When you do that, you'll feel the Spirit's conviction, at least at some level. Because he's always there working to bring you into obedience with the Lord. Sometimes you and I will respond to that conviction the right way. We go back to the word. We go back to listening. And then there's other times we respond with excuses for our rebellion. We tend to reinforce our intentional blindness through reasoning of our own for why it needs to be the way it needs to be. And we always do this, right? 
Usually after the fact. Right after I've made the major purchase I shouldn't have made. I have reasons why I needed to make that major purchase. And the financial pain it's creating now is just something I have to deal with. Rather than saying, wait a minute, that's the consequence of a bad decision which came as a result of not listening to what the Lord had asked of me in the first place. I bet many of those excuses of why we can't or won't or shouldn't or whatever, I bet a lot of those excuses sound a lot like the excuses you're going to watch Israel give back to Ezekiel in these next eight chapters. That's going to be a little theme for us. I want us to look at these as we get to them one at a time. And each time we look at them, I'm going to ask you the same question. Have you ever given God this excuse? And I think you're going to find many of these excuses are common. Now, the Lord knows they're coming. He knows everything. He knows they're coming. And in this particular case, He knows Ezekiel is going to hear these things from God's people. So, He gives Ezekiel a message to send to the people in expectation of what they're going to say next. In this case, like he did in the very first vision, he asked Ezekiel to act out this vision. And the skit, as I'm calling it, reinforces a truth they've already heard. That is, that the city of Jerusalem is going to be sacked and destroyed, and the people sent into exile, and that the Jewish people as a whole are going to be removed from their land entirely. There will be no more Jewish state in the land for a time. And the people will be scattered, and the temple will be destroyed. And they're not coming back anytime soon. They're going to be gone for a while. That's the key issue. The key issue for the exiles who are already in Babylon is this truth that they're having trouble with, that the people they left behind are not leaving for a little while, they're leaving for a long time. And it's not just some of them that are leaving, it's all of them who are leaving. They understood that Judah was under judgment because their own exile makes that truth self-evident. We know we're in trouble, look where we are. But what they didn't grasp is the magnitude of that judgment. They assumed that they were going to be held outside the land for a short time and then they'd all get to go home and it would all work out. And they assumed that those who were still in Jerusalem were going to stay there and hold down the fort. And their main reason for that optimism was the Shekinah glory of God was still present in the temple. And if God's sticking around, then obviously they aren't going to be able to destroy the city. Well, that's why God gave them the visions He just gave them. He says, I'm not sticking around, I am leaving, and that's why the city will fall. But all of those wrong assumptions that they had about their people and about their future gave them a false sense of security, a false hope. And that false hope gave opportunity for pride. And pride gave opportunity for rebellion. And that's where they are now, rebellion. Misplaced confidence gives birth to hard hearts. And yet the Lord's still working to soften them. Note in verse 3, the Lord tells Ezekiel, I'm going to have you do this in the hope that perhaps Israel will get the message. Let's go through what he's told to do here. He's told first to pack his baggage for exile, and then he's told, leave your home for some place. It doesn't really matter where you go. That's not the point. Just get out of town. What do you pack as an exile? Not much, right? The whole idea is that you're showing that this is a desperate circumstance. It's happening quickly. You're under siege. So just grab bare necessities from your home. And then he says, go out by daylight. You know, it says later, go out at night. And let me give you an understanding of what he's doing here. This probably means Ezekiel was told to bring out his belongings from his house during the daytime, but leave them out on the ground somewhere in the court. Most homes in this time of this day and in this part of the world had these courtyard walls built around the home to separate the home from other homes. And so it would have been a first step for him to get everything out of the home itself you ever imagine like a, a wife kicking her husband out of the house and throwing all her, his clothes out the window? You know, this is the, that's the image you might want to have here of somebody in a hurry with very little thought 
taking some basic things and throwing them out into the yard. That's where Ezekiel starts. Now that would have obviously created a spectacle, which is the whole point. Clothes, food, whatever else he thought he needed thrown out into the ground. His neighbors would have been asking Ezekiel, what are you doing? And where do you think you're going? We're in exile. Well, I mean, where else would you go anyway? But that's the point. Get their attention. Then, later in that day, as evening approached, now he begins his actual exodus. But he's not going to leave through the door or the gate of that courtyard. He's going to go to the wall, and he's going to dig a hole through the wall of his courtyard. Which he does. And then, with that little bit of baggage he has on his shoulders, it says, he crawls through that hole, leaving at nightfall, which is a picture of calamity falling upon the city, darkness falling on the city. You know, the night being a symbol of spiritual darkness. And then, of course, crawling through a wall reminds people of the circumstances in which they will go into exile. They're not leaving the gate as in times of peace. They're going out through a broken down wall that's been destroyed in a siege during warfare. It's an escape. And then lastly, notice this. As he crawls through the hole, he is to cover his face so he cannot see the land. Now that is a general point of a picture that exiles, as they leave their land, are not going to see their land again. They're leaving to never come back. Not in their lifetime. It reinforces that it's not a temporary affliction. But there's a darker meaning to this little detail that we come back to here in a second. Then in verse 7, Ezekiel reports that he said he did everything exactly as the Lord intended. And if you imagine how this went, I gave you just a running picture there of it, but if you imagine how something like this would actually take place, some guy in the neighborhood who goes crazy and digs a hole in his own wall and all the rest, you know, he's already got a reputation for this stuff. Right? He's already that, that guy that does crazy things laying on his side for a year out in the street and saying weird things about what God says is going to happen. And people are mocking him, I'm sure. You know, his antics have become a bit of a scandal. When they finally hear that he's digging a hole in his old courtyard wall rather than going out the gate, can you imagine how much they must have been laughing at him and just poking fun at him? The gate's over here. You missed it. What are you doing? You know, I mean, people are cruel. What would, what would you expect them to do? But that's the reason why he's got the task. This is exactly why he is doing what he's doing. It's so that he would get a crowd. This people have been given the same prophecy he's giving them right now. This is not news. That's what's so interesting to me about this. Most of it is the same story. This is about Jerusalem falling at the third coming of Nebuchadnezzar, which we've been studying. What he's doing, though, in this instance is he's amplifying the message with this spectacle. The people cannot ignore what Ezekiel is doing, even if they will ignore what he's saying. The question, as he asks it of Ezekiel, is maybe this time they'll actually listen. And I think at this point, as you see what God's asking Ezekiel to do to get a message across, you have to start feeling some pity for this guy about now, don't you? I mean, he's being asked to sacrifice his pride, his dignity, his honor. And for who? For a bunch of people who've already gotten the word multiple times, and they just keep rejecting it. It would be tempting for us to think about them at this point by simply saying, you know, they've had their chance. They made their bed. Let them lie in it. They want it? Fine. It's coming. Let them see how they feel about it after that. Why should a man of obedience and upright character like Ezekiel have to sacrifice his dignity to serve a people who could not care less about pleasing God in the first place? Isn't that the way you start to feel about this point as you watch what he has to do as a prophet? Let me tell you why he has to do it. It's called ministry. Ministry, the word ministry means to serve. This is what ministry is. It's what the Lord asks from all of us, just in different ways. 
It's the idea of serving others even when there's a cost to doing it, even when it's not easy. That's why we call it ministry and not fun. Did I say that out loud? Sorry. I mean, honestly, we're all called to sacrifice ourselves in the task of serving the Lord. And that personal sacrifice isn't for our own sake anyway. It's not to glorify us. It's to glorify Him. Now, of course, serving God is not all doom and gloom, and I'm not saying it is. Many, many times it's a joy. I would assume just our guest this morning would echo that, that in many cases, as he goes around the world getting to do what he loves, he's enjoying the blessings of serving the Lord. But I also believe that if he were honest for a moment, he would tell you there are some days when it's not necessarily such a happy thing. There's some drudgery to being on the road. There's some experiences I'm sure he could relate where it wasn't all exactly the way he wanted it to go, and that's, that's service too. In the first case, the service is one of showing the joy of what the Lord is doing through him. In the second case, the service is of perseverance, patience, forgiveness, whatever's necessary. Sometimes the Lord gives you the opportunity to do a little of what I think you see this morning with our guest, with Randy, that is to stand in the spotlight, to receive thanks, to know what accolades are like as you serve the body of Christ, to experience triumphs. To see the miraculous fruit of what God does. I mean, we all long for that, and some of us get it. Moments like Peter had at Pentecost, or Paul and Barnabas got when they went to Antioch, or a Billy Graham crusade moment. Those are the moments that we all long for, we yearn for them. Sometimes the Lord grants them to us from time to time. That encourages us. We glorify Him for it. It's all good. But there are other times, and I would argue that actually most of the time, Serving the Lord is more about sacrifice than spotlight. Much more. There's not going to be a spotlight. There's no cheering crowds. There's no fame and fortune. The Lord assigns us a task that requires that we set aside personal interests like wealth, or comfort, or safety, or popularity, or even dignity. At the very least, you're going to sacrifice some time when you serve the Lord. And at worst, you may lose your career, You may lose your friends, you may lose your family, you may lose your freedom. Talk to missionaries around the world, they'll tell you those things are an ever-present concern. He may tell you to take up a cross of shame and serve Him just as He took up one to serve you. No one is exempt from this pattern. And I'll give you a simple example that you probably know pretty well, that is of Paul himself. In 1 Corinthians 4.9, Paul says this, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Paul says the Lord exhibited the apostles as last of all men. The word exhibited there literally means to put someone on public display, which is why he says we're a spectacle. And exactly what spectacle did Paul have to perform, as as it were? Ezekiel had his wall tunneling exercise. What did Paul get? I'll let him tell you in his own words. 2 Corinthians 6, chapter 6, verse 1. He says this, And working together with Christ, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardship, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, 
in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, received as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. That's Paul's summary of what his life was like in bringing the message of salvation to the world. In short, he suffered for the sake of the gospel. Why did he do it? Well, he did it because he knew he had everything he needed waiting for him in the eternal realm, so it really didn't matter what he lost here along the way. And he had even more of it because of his willingness to serve the Lord in sacrificial ways. So, as I like to say, he had eyes for eternity. And that was Paul's mission. And God asks all of us in our own way to make sacrifices here and there because that's how he is glorified the most and that's how we grow the most. And that's what he's asking of Ezekiel. Put your dignity on the line for me once more so we might do some good work in this case. He was called to be a servant to a disobedient, stiff-necked, the Bible says, stiff-necked people. You know why they call them stiff-necked, right? To bow your neck meant to be humble and to show proper respect to an authority. But Israel was stiff-necked. You weren't going to get their head down. As a people group, they had that tendency. Now, how do you think serving God under those circumstances is going to go? Well, it's called the book of Ezekiel. His obedience required great sacrifice, but because he was willing to make these kinds of sacrifices, what he gained in that difficult service was he gained reward. He gained God's pleasure. He gained the things that we all seek. So he's completed his task. He gives the Lord his report. Aye, aye, sir, I've done my job. And then the Lord gives Ezekiel an interpretation of what he just did. Verse 8. In the morning, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing? (laughs) Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, This burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem as well as all the house of Israel who are in it. Say, I am assigned to you. As I have done, so it will be done to them. They will go into exile, into captivity. The prince who is among them will load his baggage on his shoulder in the dark and go out. They will dig a hole through the wall to bring it out. He will cover his face so that he cannot see the land with his eyes. I will also spread my net over him, and he will be caught in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans, yet he will not see it, though he will die there. I will scatter to every wind all who are around him, his helpers and all his troops, and I will draw out a sword after them. So they will know that I am the Lord when I scatter them among the nations and spread them among the countries. But I will spare a few of them with the sword the famine, and the pestilence, that they may tell all their abominations among the nations where they go, and may know that I am the Lord. So now, the next morning, he says, after he's done that little skit the night before, now the Lord tells him, here's what that meant. He says, here's what all the symbols mean, and I want you to go and communicate all this back to the people. That's presumably what he's doing, because he starts by saying, remember them asking you what you were doing that for? Well, let me tell you. The intent is to go back and explain it to the people. So the skit got their attention, they watched it, now they want to know what it means, so now the Lord tells Ezekiel, this is what you tell them. And here's what he says, verse 10, he says, this is concerning the prince in Jerusalem. Now the term prince here refers to the king that was ruling in Judah, in Jerusalem, among those who were still in the land. His name was King Zedekiah. Zedekiah was in power, 
because King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon put him in the job after Nebuchadnezzar had come in and done his second wave of destruction on the city. The previous king, Jehoiakim, had rebelled against Babylonian rule, and that's what had precipitated Nebuchadnezzar to have to come down that second time and put down a new rebellion. Well, Jehoiakim went into exile along with that second wave of exiles, which included Ezekiel. So King Jehoiakim is actually in Babylon right now with Ezekiel, with all those other exiles. That King Zedekiah guy, he's a puppet. He got put in power after they left the second time. Now Ezekiel and the rest of the exiles don't see him as legitimate king. They still see Jehoiakim as the legitimate king. So he's referring to the guy back in Jerusalem as prince as a way of denigrating his position of power there, saying he's not really king. At best, he's a prince. But Zedekiah was ruling. I mean, he obviously was the guy there for the time. And he was ruling over those left behind in Jerusalem. This prophecy describes what will happen to that king and all the people of the city in a future day, when Nebuchadnezzar came back the third time. And just as was done in the earlier exiles, so he says it will be done for these in the city. King Zedekiah will himself be trying to escape at one point under cover of darkness with only a few things on his back. So now we're learning that what Ezekiel did is actually a picture both of the city in general, but specifically of what the king will do, this King Zedekiah. He'll actually have to dig a hole through the rubble of the walls of the city after it's been destroyed to try to escape. And he puts something over his face to conceal his identity so no one will know it's him. That's the picture of him covering his eyes, it says. And then the Lord says in verse 13 that despite the king trying to get away like that, the Lord's going to set a snare for him, a net, like catching a bird. The Lord promises that Zedekiah will be captured by the Babylonians. He'll be brought back to Babylon as an exile along with everyone else. This would be the third wave of exiles that are going to happen. And then he says eventually that king's going to die in exile. He's never going to see Judah again. But then he says very curiously, Despite the fact that Zedekiah is going to be captured and hauled back to Babylon, Zedekiah will never see Babylon, which is the picture of him having that thing over his eyes so that he cannot see the land. Now, according to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, the king, King Zedekiah, received this word of prophecy that Ezekiel wrote. Perhaps a Jew who was a slave traveling with Babylonian officials or somehow the word that Ezekiel gets while in exile is given back to Zedekiah in Jerusalem. He hears of it. But Josephus says, unsurprisingly, that Zedekiah doesn't accept it. He doesn't believe it. Ironically, Josephus says Zedekiah rejects that prophecy because it disagreed, he thought, with a similar prophecy he had heard from his local prophet, Jeremiah. So Jeremiah in Jerusalem was saying, you're going to be taken to Babylon and you're going to die there. And Ezekiel sends back a prophecy saying, you're going to be taken to Babylon and you're going to die there. But they differed at least in one detail that caused Zedekiah to dismiss both of them. But it wasn't actually a disagreement. He misunderstood. Let me read what Josephus wrote. This is Josephus. Ezekiel also foretold in Babylon what calamities were coming upon the people, with which when he heard, he sent accounts of them into Jerusalem. But Zedekiah did not believe their prophecies for the reason following. It happened that the two prophets agreed with one another in what they say in all other things, that the city would be taken, Zedekiah himself would be taken captive. But Ezekiel disagreed with Jeremiah and said that Zedekiah would not see Babylon, while Jeremiah said to him that the king of Babylon should carry him away there in bonds. 
But because they did not both say the same thing as to this circumstance, Zedekiah believed that they both appeared to not speak truth to him, and he dismissed all that they said, though all the things foretold to him did come to pass. So why are they in disagreement or seem to be? Well, it's that detail that one said he would end up in Babylon, and the other said you would not see Babylon. Well, this is what actually happened. When Nebuchadnezzar came in for that third attack, you remember he sent his army down, they sacked the city, they destroyed it, destroyed the temple, everything, took the exiles. Remember I told you that Nebuchadnezzar met the exiles when the exiles reached the border of the land of Israel in a place called Riblah. So Nebuchadnezzar came down only about halfway. They met him at the border. What happened at that point? Remember I said that all the leaders of the city were executed in Riblah? Well, all of them except one. King Zedekiah was not executed. But what they did is they brought the sons of Zedekiah before him and killed his sons in his sight while he watched. And then they gouged his eyes out so that the last thing he saw was his sons dying. Then they hauled him off to Babylon without his eyesight, which is why he never saw Babylon, though he was in Babylon. So those two prophecies were exactly in agreement, but in that small detail, Zedekiah didn't get it. This is great for Sunday morning, isn't it? This is just it's uplifting. Just, uh, it's in the Bible, friends. It's in the Bible. Finally, the prophecy explains in verse 15, we're told that the people of the city would be scattered. They'd be scattered among other nations, spread out into other countries. Many would die in the siege. Others would die in captivity. Others in famine. Others in disease. But to fulfill the purpose of the Lord in all of this terrible activity, he says he will spare a few within Israel. And they will go out into the world as his witnesses. And because of what they've experienced, what their countrymen have experienced, they go out a very different people than they were when they were in their land. Remember I said it was this misplaced hope, this misplaced confidence that had caused them to become prideful and arrogant and rebellious and disobedient. Well, the Lord has just dealt with all of those things in a very harsh way. But we must also assume in the only way he could. And by bringing them low in this dramatic fashion, he has now sent out his witnesses into the world, in that of the remnant of Israel, who can testify now to what the Lord has done to them. And as a result, as we said in earlier weeks, this puts an end to idolatry in Israel. Never again in their history as a people do they ever engage in idolatry again. Not in a systematic way like they had before that. That's the full meaning of the prophecy Ezekiel had to act out. Now here's an interesting thought. As the people were asking Ezekiel, why are you doing these strange things? Do you notice he did not have an answer for them at that time? Because the Lord didn't give him these things until after it was all over. So we can safely assume that Ezekiel understood the broad storyline. I mean, he had already been given prophecies about this very same thing, right? He knew there was an exile coming. He knew the city was going to be destroyed. All of that would have been understood. And so when the people gathered to ask him what was going on, he could have told them, well, this is about your coming judgment. Yeah, that much is true. But the exact details, all the little pieces and what they meant, none of that was available to Ezekiel. Not right away, not when he was performing it. And so therefore the people themselves wouldn't have been getting very successful, very satisfactory answers when they looked for those answers. Only after it was over did the Lord reveal the meaning of these things to Ezekiel. As you can see, those details could never have been understood apart from God's revelation. It's not like they would have figured all this out on their own. It wasn't a puzzle that God intended them to solve on their own. It was a spectacle intended to get their attention for the Word of God to then be the thing that explained it. Now, can you identify a little bit with Ezekiel's situation in that regard? Because I know I can. 
In the sense that God asks you to serve Him in some way, but He does not give you full sense of why or what it's going to accomplish or why you're supposed to do it. You just know you're supposed to do it. You don't have the details. You don't even have answers to the questions that other people ask you for why you're doing what you're doing. And when they do ask you what you're doing, all you can do is say, well, the Lord told me I need to do this. And then they wonder if you got a screw loose. Or did you really hear from the Lord? Are you just making that up so you can do what you want to do? You know, all the kinds of ways we play in our heads with whether or not we're on the right track. That's a test of faith. And I'll tell you from my own experience, that's a major test of faith. There was an experience my wife and I had years ago. 15 years now, I think. We were attending a church together with our family at the time. We were active in that church. We were... I was teaching the Bible. We were ministering in various ways. We liked the pastor. He's a pretty nice guy. We had our friends there. It was, you know, it wasn't perfect, but no church is perfect. It's just a good place to be. And after we'd been there a few years, there came a point when we both felt that the Lord was calling us to leave that church. And he didn't give us any specific reason. And there was no, I mean, we had things we could point to. Well, we, we kind of don't like this. The coffee's not very good. Sometimes we don't like this about his sermons. But honestly, none of that stuff was new. So you couldn't have pointed to it and said, Aha, that's the reason we have to leave. We just knew in our hearts. And the worst part of it was we didn't have a church waiting for us. And even if we had found one, we wouldn't have been able to step right in and serve the way we were already serving in this church. So it would have set us back in that respect to move on to another church, right? And yet, despite all those barriers, it was time to leave. Leaving a church is tough whenever you have to do it, even if you have good reasons. But let me tell you, leaving a church when you're trying to leave your friends, your service opportunities, your kids are leaving their friends, and you don't have a specific reason why you're leaving, that's really tough. You know, you don't want to hurt feelings. You don't look forward to the grueling process of finding the next church. All of that's holding you back, and yet you know you're supposed to go. And then when the pastor or friends of ours would ask us, Why are you leaving? You don't have an acceptable answer? That's an awkward moment. I remember telling that pastor when he asked me that question, I remember telling him, I don't know, but I just feel like the Lord's telling us to be available. And he said, available for what? I said, well, I don't know. I think that answer confused him. I think he assumed there was something else I wasn't willing to tell him. And I can tell you, our kids weren't happy. The truth was, even we didn't like that answer. In the midst of it. We didn't really like it. We weren't sure if we were moving in the right direction. But we had the sense that God was asking us to go. We just wish we knew why. And not knowing turned out to be the bigger test of faith in that whole experience. Bigger than if the Lord had told us why, and then it was just a matter of leaving itself. The test of faith was whether we were willing to step out in obedience, even though we didn't have all the answers. And whether we were willing to wait on Him to direct us even after we had done that. The end of the story is that after a couple of months went by, we had largely stopped going to church. We didn't have a church. Sitting at home on a Sunday felt really, really weird. Like a quarterback on the bench or a pitcher not playing. I mean, you just felt like you were not where you were supposed to be. But then at one point, a couple months later, a couple of families approached my wife and I independently and asked us to start a church with them. And that's where my little career as a pastor was launched. And then suddenly we had a reason for why we needed to be available. Ezekiel, I think, was probably getting used to things like this, these strange assignments that came without a lot of answers. But even though he might have been used to them, he still had to do that step out moment. There was still that moment 
where even before he knew why or how, he had to do what God was asking him to do. And he had to endure the questions from the crowd. He had to endure the indignity of not having good answers. And all he could say to them was, Thus saith the Lord. Now, if that wasn't enough, well, he didn't have anything better. What those moments did for him, I assume, because I know what it does for me, is it builds up faith. It gives you greater reason to obey the next time. Because you remember the last time that you were asked to step out. And later in this book, the Lord's going to ask some even greater things of Ezekiel, some pretty dramatic sacrifice. And I, I think this book moves in steps the way it does, because if we had those later chapters too early in this book, I don't know if Ezekiel could have done them. Not to sell them short, but I just think that's the sense of everyone's walk. Look at that pattern in your own life. Look for it. Because it's in there somewhere. I'm not sure how far down that walk you've gone, but the Lord is doing that in your life. I'm convinced He does it for everyone. He expects us to take on small tasks first that don't ask as much, that don't put as much at risk. And then as we accomplish those and gain the benefits thereof, we have gained a greater step of faith for the next. And watch Him as He calls you in that way. Sooner or later the calls start coming without explanation, and then at some point they'll start coming despite all sense. Things that make no sense will become the standard. And in practice with that, you'll start to grow and trust that you can do whatever God asks you to do, even if you don't have the answers. And the ultimate test of your faith will be when it doesn't make sense and He doesn't give you the answer after the fact. You just do it. You begin to understand Jesus' words when you do that, when He says, My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Because I'll tell you from experience, trusting that answers may come in the future makes doing what you're called to do now easier not harder. When you get to the point of accepting you just do it without answers, it gets easier. I'm the kind of guy that wants all the answers. My wife will tell you that. But that's hard. It's hard to work with a God who doesn't give you the answers on your timing when you demand your answers before Him. So let's learn to follow the Lord sacrificially. Let's learn to do it without requiring all the answers first. Think a little bit about Ezekiel's case, and maybe you'll learn a little from what he did, that God may use us with or without answers. He just asks us to do as He asks. And we'll get great things done as He uses us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer in a time of communion. Dear Father, use us all, Father. Use us as You call us. Direct us as You will. Help us understand when it's appropriate. But give us faith to act in accordance with Your Word, even when we don't have answers, Father, for that's the way we please You. And in a day to come, as we all live in eternity together, and we know all things as You teach, we'll understand, Father, and that'll be our opportunity to rejoice in what you did. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.